This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, it's me, Sam Baker. And before we go on with the show, I want to tell you about an exciting new initiative coming from The Shift. Many of you have asked how you can support the podcast further and get more Shift into the bargain. Well, now you have the opportunity to do just that by joining the Shift community. You can go to steady.media forward slash the shift and become a member of the Shift. In return for supporting the podcast, you'll receive exclusive weekly newsletters, community membership and plenty of other perks aimed at bringing us all closer together. That's steady.media forward slash the shift. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster Sam Baker. Today's guest is nothing less than an acting legend, although she probably wouldn't have much truck with that. Dame Sheila Hancock is that rare thing, a successful actor with working-class roots, an 89-year-old who's still beating off offers with a stick, and a woman who refuses to be afraid to speak her mind. Sheila has done everything, from Shakespeare to sitcoms. A member of the National Theatre Company, she was the first woman to direct at the Olivier Theatre in her 50s and has been nominated for six Olivier Awards, written two novels and a loose trilogy of memoirs. The third is Old Rage, which started out as a book about the wisdom and fulfilment of old age and ended up not. What they need is somebody to listen to them and make it happen. But I think the young people are looking for a better world and we've just got to make it possible for them to achieve it. 90 next year, Sheila is taking less prisoners than ever. She joined me from her living room to talk education and inequality, corruption, climate change and Brexit, suffering from the empathy disease and why being seen as a strong woman is a double-edged sword. Sheila Hancock for PM. You're very tech savvy. I'm very impressed. 
Well, I'm not really, you know. I haven't had to do a Zoom for a few days and I get out of the way of it. I haven't got an iPad thing. I've got a Dell because I had that years and years ago and it links with my computer. And it's got a very bad link thing, you know. So I've had mm. to have a wire that goes right across my room oh, to no. the thing, you know. <laughs> so I've just been fiddling with that. So that may have helped. But I, I don't really understand it all. I, I, mean, I do it, but I don't really understand it. You can do it. That's enough there's no point understanding it because it'll change again next week anyway so I know I know that's a dumb thing I, I call on my grandchildren when I'm absolutely desperate I only learned during lockdown actually yeah I mean that must have been a bit of a baptism of fire was it it was because I, I mean people forget people of my generation if you weren't a typist and there were lots of those I mean women did all the typing in those days men didn't type at all but when computers first came in Amstrad computers that did all these magical things. I'd never done anything like that in my life before. So I started right from having to understand how to do a keyboard and all that. And then, of course, when it expanded and phones and all that sort of thing, the children start at a very knowledgeable platform. That's what they've known all their lives. Poor old farts like me is <laughs> from the beginning, you know, and every now and then when they start talking jargon to me, I just say, look, I don't understand what you're talking about. You're just <laughs> talking English. Yeah, don't tell me I've gone viral. Just tell me what that means. Absolutely. I mean, I was really alarmed when they told me I'd gone viral from a, a thing that I did. I did a debate just before Brexit. And um, the children were terribly overexcited and said, I've gone viral. And I said, well, that sounds dreadful. Done. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I didn't even know it's being recorded and, um, and streaming and all, all those things. They forget that those words are totally new to me. Every time mm. one comes up, I have to rethink my vocabulary, you know? <laughs> oh, there's so much of that, isn't there? When you were writing Old Rage, did those changes that you've experienced, did they loom really large? Yes, they did. I mean, I was um, on the extra vulnerable. I still am on the extremely vulnerable list. And uh, I had to go into complete isolation. And... Um, I couldn't see anybody until I learned how to Zoom. I mean, I spoke to the children on the phone and they stood in the road and I stood at the open door occasionally, you know, but I was completely isolated. And that was when they actually said, look, this is ridiculous. There's this thing where we can see your face. You've got to learn how to do it. So that's what we did. But I learned it on Zoom. I managed to get myself on and was shouting, unmute, unmute, and all that stuff. <laughs> talking about you stupid children but anyway eventually I I did get the hang of it and it was a savior for people that were on their own it really was I mean you know to be locked down without any kind of communication like that must have been absolutely dreadful and people forget that that during lockdown you know there were people that didn't have any connection and children that were trying to learn doing all their lessons on iPads and things lots of families didn't have them and they were trying to do it on their dad's phone or something like that you know and, and education has been set back terribly because of that I don't know how those kids are ever going to catch up no, I mean, it, there was just an assumption, wasn't there, that people would be equipped to do it, that they would have the space to do it, that they, yeah, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, they said, I mean, they, you know, our government, they've all went to eat and they've got no idea how the other half lives. And they can't imagine what it's like to be in a high rise flat stuck with a group of kids and one iPhone belonging to the father who wants to 
use it, you know, or nothing, or nothing. No. I just saw something before I came on. One of the cabinet ministers had said, oh, I'm sure that families will find that they can make their budget stretch if they buy value ranges. I mean, it just, you you don't know where to begin, do you, really? I mean, such utter, utter ignorance. They honestly do not understand what it's like to be poor or disabled or, you know, they've learned to be compassionate. I mean, Eaton is frightfully good at teaching people responsibility towards lesser beings and, you know, a, a, a sort of society outlook and all that sort of thing. But unless you've really experienced it, you don't know what it's like to try and live on tons of hate a week. And then suddenly everything quadruples and you can't cope. You just can't cope. It's as simple as that. God alone knows what people are going to do over the next year or whatever it is before we get back on our feet. Yeah, we'll be lucky if it's a year, I think. I mean, you're very empathetic. Did that come from your childhood? I don't I don't know. Well, it, it comes mainly from my dad. I, I tell a story in the book, which is absolutely true. A person who's a counsellor told me it was an awful thing to have said to me. But my father, after the war, when I was 11, there were pictures and films of what they discovered in Belson in the camps, which, you know, I didn't know. And my dad showed me a picture of a little boy standing on a bench being pointed at by Nazis in white coats. There was this man, Dr. Mengele, who did experiments on Jewish children. He was naked standing there. And it was the most appalling picture. And my dad showed it to me and said, this must never happen again. And it's down to you. And that it's down to you has haunted me all my life, I think. I'm sorry, I'll just turn that off. Don't worry. I was 11. I was 11. I was seven when war broke out. And uh, that has stayed with me, quite honestly. And I think that probably is the thing that's guided my entire life is down to you, both in my personal life and in trying to right wrongs in other people, what John used to call my messiah complex, which, of course, you go around helping people all the time. Then very often they they learn not to do it themselves. So I, I do understand that it can be an, an obsession that doesn't do a lot of good. But if I see something wrong, I have to do something about it. Mm. It's a kind of illness, really, in a way. I just... I just I can't not do it. I can't shut up and mind my own business. I just can't. Um, so, yes, if you, you can call it empathy, if you like, but I'd call it a disease. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell us a bit more about your childhood for listeners who don't know about your experience growing up? Well, I, when I was born, my dad and mum worked in pubs. They worked for a brewery, so they kept being sent to different pubs. And I was born when they were in a hotel, working in a hotel on the Isle of Wight. So I was born in Blackgown. And uh, then we moved to a pub in Berkshire. Then we moved to a, a pub in King's Cross. And they would live on the site. So in King's Cross, there was a flat above the pub where we lived. And they worked all the hours that God sent because, you know, there was always what they called cellar work to be done. They had to work on the beers and things. There weren't all these lovely thermometers and things in those days. And then war broke out. Dad and mum gave up the pubs and we lived in a place called Bexley Heath. I think they did it because they wanted me to have a more settled life. And in fact, it was a disaster because it was what was called Bomb Alley, which is Mm. where all the... um, guns and and, uh, searchlights and things were trying to stop the German bombers get into 
the docks and the Woolwich Arsenal and Vickers Armstrong. And so it was an endless dogfight going on. So we lived down the shelters, really. You know, when we, we went to school, we did our work down in the shelters, which is what makes me incredibly empathetic, for want of a better word, with the Ukrainians now. And yeah, and, and then I, I changed schools, as you can imagine, lots of different times when they moved around. But then I did get a scholarship because in those days it wasn't free to go to a grammar school in Dartford and um, had a wonderful education and wonderful teachers, but then left when I was about just 16 because I didn't know what university was. I mean, that seems very odd, but no. uh, we didn't have telly or anything like that. So if you came from my background, I didn't know a single person that had been to university. That seems so unusual now, but I honestly didn't. And I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what Oxford and Cambridge was. I knew it was a boat race, but I didn't know. Really, <laughs> you know, and I was quite a bright kid. My teachers thought I could get what was called a state scholarship to Oxford or Cambridge. But it was the last thing I wanted to do. And I think somebody should have had the sense. And I've done this with other people who say they want, don't want to go to university. I've taken them to a university town to show them what it's like, because it's, it's not like school. Do you know what I mean? It's totally different. So I've. I regretted not going for the rest of my life, quite honestly. But I did go to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. And I had a very bad London accent at that time. I spent most of the time. And you had to have received pronunciation, as it was called in those days. Oh, yeah. Posh, basically. Yeah, posh talk. And I, I had a hell of a time because most of the people are rather in those days, because, again, I was on a scholarship, were quite aristocratic. It was like a sort of finishing school in the 40s, <laughs> late 40s and 50s. And so... Um, I was really on my own, me and somebody called Shaney Wallace, who was a Londoner. And I hated every minute of RADA, quite honestly. I, did, I don't think I learned a great deal. And then I, you know, I went into the business and I did many years of weekly rep and tatty tours and all sorts of things. How did you even know that RADA existed? I think a teacher told me, quite honestly. I think when, when I got to school, I, I did some school plays and um, I probably was quite good in them. And um, they suggested I try for RADA, which I did and got a scholarship. My parents couldn't have afforded to send me there. Well, they couldn't have paid the fees, but all the equipment that you need, it's the same as grammar school. My parents had a real difficulty in providing all the hockey sticks and things that you mm. have done. But, you know, I, I'm making it sound a, a really sad sob story, but my parents, you know, really wanted me to have a wonderful life. But from a working class background, your parents want you to do better. And that still applies. You know, I mean, everybody wants their kids to have a better life than them. Sadly, I think this generation, we're going to look at our kids and think, what have we done to them? You know, what with climate change and all the wars and Brexit and all those things where, you know, there were interchanges of universities and all that, all that has had to stop. So I don't think however much you want it to be better, I don't think it will be for the next generation. So much is made of the generational divide, isn't it? Do you believe in that or do you think it's kind of a construct? Oh, no, I think that people have tried to make it happen. But um, no, I think older people get on terribly well with the young, usually. I mean, grannies can be a very useful member of the family because I find with my grandchildren, certainly the older ones, they can talk to me in a way that they can't talk to their parents because they know that I'll never tell anybody else what they've said to me. So if they have a real problem that's going to worry their parents badly, they will tell me and I will either try to solve it 
or you know take some sort of measure but i i think i wish there were more there are some old people's homes where they have children coming in you know primary school mm. children go in and play with the older people and it works terribly well it really does for both sides the children love the old people with their stories and the old people just love having youngsters around so we should be working at bringing the generations together i, I mean it's mainly a lot of these things are invented by the press you know it's mm. a kind of Mickey thing, but I certainly my own experience is that I get on very well with the young. I, I love young people and I would loathe not to be involved with them. You know, I often do advise. I mean, I do get a lot of letters as a result of my books and, and people say how lonely they are and, you know, particularly widows and widowers. And I always say, well, seek out company, offer your services, go to the local school and see if they want somebody to read stories or, you know, any sort of soup kitchen now, sadly mm. enough. You know, there are all sorts of ways where you can meet people. And I think that is something that's happened in lockdown, that a lot of people have got together to help cope with it, you know, and certainly... With the vaccination program and things like that, people have got together. But it's not happening at the top. It's really not. There are certain people living. I mean, you know, Partygate is a, is a classic example of it. There seems to have been another life going on that bore no resemblance to what most of us were experiencing. Me to a certain degree, but others to an appalling degree. Dreadful, tragic degree. Um, and that does make it difficult for people at the top to make changes if you lose your trust in them. Yeah, I mean, I think if there's a divide, that's where it is increasingly between right. the people at the top and the rest of us. I saw a woman on Channel 4 and it moved me so much. And she was an elderly woman, but she said never in her time, and I think I probably think this myself, but has there have been so much, I can't remember the word she used, but she meant lack of moral compass in all spheres of society, certainly the government, the police and the NHS. Is, we discovered all sorts of things going on during lockdown that they were responsible for it, but there were certain people providing things for the NHS that were friends of the government and things like that. So corruption, if we're not careful, it's becoming endemic in our society. And I have a feeling, but then I am working with Ukrainian refugees or refugees, full stop. And the people that are involved in that, the people that are helping, are amazingly dedicated to doing the right thing and helping people and trying to change things. So we mustn't forget that it isn't altogether true. Just as in Parliament, there are a lot of dedicated MPs. And I think a lot of them are deeply shocked by what's going on. And we mustn't forget that. And they're good constituency MPs, which is one of their main jobs. In these last five years, which have been incredibly tough, in amongst the kind of fury, you haven't lost hope. You haven't lost faith in our capacity no. to change. No, I haven't, because I think the younger generation want change. I want change. I don't think our political system works, and I think it needs to be rethought. The two-party system, adverse adversarial system, you know. I'd like to see a round parliament, you know, so that they all sit round in a circle. Mm. I'd like them not to be members of a party. I'd like them to be there because they're 
experience and want to do good. But I just know that it isn't working. And I think we all know it isn't working at the moment. Most of the youngsters I know are not political, as I was when I was young. Mm. They are dedicated to a cause. Of course, the environment, Black Lives Matter, Me Too. You know, they've got all these campaigns for good. And while that's going on, I'm hopeful. What they need is somebody to listen to them and make it happen. But I think the young people are looking for a better world and we've just got to make it possible for them to achieve it. You've always been a big campaigner, haven't you? I mean, you were involved in Greenham Common, amongst other things. Yes. When I'm involved, I went down there occasionally. Let's not pretend I put up with what those women did. I mean, they were amazing. They were amazing. They were reviled and abused and they stuck it out, freezing cold in the mud, being kicked by people. And, you know, I mean, they were amazing. But I went down on all the lovely occasions when we embraced the base and all that. It was lovely, (laughs) wonderful. Enjoyed it. So, yes. But I mean, my first campaign, funnily enough, I was thinking about it the other day. I went for a walk with one of my grandchildren during lockdown, which I shouldn't have done, around the West, around Westminster. And we were at 10 Downing Street. And I, I was saying to her, you can't believe it. But when I was young, these gates weren't here. You could go up to the front door and there was one copper on duty <laughs> and you could hand in a petition. And my first one was for Ruth Ellis, you know, the murder mm. which affected me profoundly because it was appalling that this woman, as she would in those days and as she did, hang. So I had a massive petition. I had loads of pieces of paper and lists and God knows what. And I staggered up to the front door and and handed it to the policeman and in it went. And that was my first one. And I went many times with other petitions and things. And I remember a couple once saying, oh, not you again. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it was wonderful that you could do that in those days. You really could. And unfortunately, that is much more difficult. And an act has just been passed in Parliament. It's been slipped by last week where it's going to be more difficult to demonstrate and to object. There are things coming in that are going to restrict that sort of behaviour, which appalls me. We have to have the right to protest. We have to have the right to say, no, we don't agree with that, whatever it is. And that can be people that I disagree with have the right to say it as well. And we need to talk about it. It's the way they sneak things through when you're looking the other way as well, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, that's such an important bill. It just slid through with no... With nothing. No, they're very good at that, this lot. They're very good at distracting. They're very good at manipulating things, Um, you know, releasing a bit of news that's going to get the headlines while they do something that is really wrong, in my opinion, or some people's opinion, maybe not all, but at least should have been talked about more. Yeah, at least discussed. Um, I want to talk to you a bit more about your career. You said, you know, you left Rauda and you went into, was effectively touring rep, wasn't it? And a few times in the book, you kind of almost do yourself down a little bit. Like you say, you were also ran. And did you feel that way when you were acting? Did you feel like you were kind of a poor relation? Yes, I just accepted the fact that I'm a working actress. Do you know what I mean? People often say to people like me, what part would you like to play? I'm not in that position. I never have been. 
I play the parts and I'm offered if I like them. Do you know what I mean? And if they pay reasonably well, because I had a family. Um, and so I kind of accept And when I started in the business, you did have to be a bit classy. And, you know, the, the West End was full of really rather elegant, well-spoken, good-looking actresses. And I was never that. So I, I did weekly rep. I did, you know, in various places. But I, I wouldn't have missed it for the world in retrospect, because I learned. I mean, I write about it in my book. I was in Oldham doing tatty weekly rep for about a year at the time when the mills were closing down. So I got to know and live in a lot of societies, Workington, Oldham, all over the country I've toured. I know Britain. I really do. And I know what it was like in those days. So therefore, I understand a lot more what's going on now, because I led a, a tour of the Royal Shakespeare Company during the miners' strike. And all those sort of things I've been in the middle of being the sort of actress I am. And my passion has always been to try and take good things to the public like Shakespeare or to make them laugh. You know, I would love to have had a classical career. I mean, you know, I worship the classics. I love seeing Shakespeare myself and I loved being at the Royal Shakespeare Company when I, I did eventually get there but too late to play all the big roles. And I, I envy those people in a way, but in a way I don't because I've done comedy and I've worked with people like, I don't know, all sorts of funny people like Frankie Howard and Kenny Williams and, and that they don't do. When I was younger, when I was beginning to get known, I did a lot of sitcoms, you know, Rag Trade, Now Take My Wife, you know, Endless, Bed Sick Girl, they're all lost now and gone. But during that period, I had the most enormous fun. And the public loved them. I mean, we got audiences of millions. Now, mm. you're lucky if you get 5 million or 6 million. We got 20 million, or, eight, or suddenly 18 million or something, like John with a Sweeney. So we were loved by the public, or sometimes not loved, but on the whole, <laughs> we were part of the public. Do you know what I mean? Doing those sort yeah, of shows. Yeah, totally. I mean, and the rag trade was really groundbreaking, wasn't it? I mean, it was a sitcom about about working class women. It was, you know, it never gets mentioned when people talk about um, what happened to women, the history of feminism and all that, and the working class, the emergence of the working class on television, which they weren't very much when I was young. I, I often sort of regret that our funny little show is not mentioned because, as you say, it was about a group of women working in a sewing factory and they had a union and our catchphrase was everybody out, which yeah. became a catchphrase all around the country, you know. And the women had the best parts in it. It was Miriam Carlin, Barbara Windsor, Esme Khan and me. And it was in its funny way. I mean, it was slapstick comedy. But in its own way, it broke all sorts of barriers. And I did a show called Now Seriously. I, I, I complained to the BBC once that they were giving me rubbish to do all the time. And the man in charge at that time said, OK, well, you can have an hour to do what you like with amazing that, course, but there was a wonderful man called Barry Took who did lots of shows and he got together some people in Cambridge which were now very famous now they are and uh, I did this show called Now Seriously at Sheila Hancock and it was a sort of sketch come singing show and uh, that was a big breakthrough but not not the sort of breakthrough 
that gets a lot of coverage really yeah well I was gonna say it's funny but it's not funny because it's in a way you know what we're seeing now is that there's a lot of talk about diversity and better representation but it doesn't really stretch to class no you're right I think it's forgotten do you know what I mean because a lot of the problems with women of color in our profession is very often a class thing and certainly my background was no help in my career I'll tell you it was help to me as a child and I loved them you know and it was wonderful but I would have been better if I'd have gone to a good school and a good university I'd have started at the beginning with a big advantage This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It took me years to get to any kind of level. You're absolutely right. I think that class is one of the... In fact, I've just been reading in the paper this morning, which cheered me up no end, is that Cambridge is sort of recognising if you want to get diversity in the Russell Group universities, A, you've got to stretch beyond the private schools, which they're already trying to do, the universities. But you've also got to be very careful that you pick up the right people, people who can't afford school dinners for a start, Mm. rather than just people who go to state schools, because a lot of people who go to state schools, if you've got a good one in the area, are middle class people. Now, I Mm. think we worry too much about middle class people being advantaged because middle class people do make enormous progress all the way through history for everybody. So let's not deride them too much. But nevertheless, I'd like more people to have the luck that I had of moving from working class to a sort of middle class. Bit phony, but a sort of middle class. (laughs) What kind of point was it in your career, do you think, that you felt 
like really able to be yourself like this is me this is who I am well I suppose most recently in the canal program with Giles um because there it was all ad lib you know we just talked and interviewed people and um and saw things new and so it was absolutely genuine and it was just me being interested in things so that was the nearest I've got to feeling yeah this is what I'm like really I can be what I like but you know an actor you have to constantly be other people anyway you've got to pretend to be other people that's your job yeah that's true that's true but you had to to a greater extent because you had to you know get a posh voice and yes even when I got my posh voice I didn't get great roles um (laughs) as a posh lady because it wasn't real do you know what I mean there's something about me that is very common and I I, I've never been able to get I remember listening to the critics once I did a play at the Royal Court a restoration play and this is years ago a critic would never say anything like this before but somebody praised my performance in this um restoration play at the court and what the, a woman critic said, yes, but she is a bit common, isn't she, for restoration? And, How and rude! I, you know, well, you couldn't say that now, bless her heart. You know, and she was absolutely <laughs> right. She was absolutely <laughs> right. I did vulgarise it. I'm quite sure. Oh, no, I, I won't have that. <laughs> yeah, I think I did. I wasn't as classy as. I mean, now my performance in that would be absolutely all right. But in those days, you did have to speak the language beautifully and be conscious of poise and how you look and wearing the costume beautifully and all that. And I, I'm quite sure I didn't. <laughs> but anyway, one of the other critics that were talking about it did like me, so that's all right. I don't usually even read the critics, but this was a radio thing that I just happened to hear. Yeah, no, best not to. But I think it was Desert Island Discs, and maybe you had your best voice on for it that was in 2000 and you were your voice was very received pronunciation and then by the time you were doing interviews last year you sounded like you sound now like more a bit more like you I've done Desert Island this twice actually so it was probably the early one that I did yeah no I I mean it's wonderful that actors don't have to be like that now it is wonderful that Henry V can be black and I have a Cockney accent, yeah. you know, because, it, you know, it works. And, and it was terribly limiting casting. It was terribly limiting. And only beautiful girls. I did a play called Rattle of a Simple Man, and I got awards for it in the West End, and it was a great part. And, uh, you know, not, it was wonderful. And then they did the film of it, and they cast Dion Cilento, who was a beautiful girl, beautiful woman, a bit like me, a beautiful version of me. So I can understand <laughs> why. And, you know, I totally accepted that was all right. In films, you were beautiful. It's as simple as that. And I never thought I could possibly be in films. And funnily enough, the director, Muriel Box, years later, apologised to me for that. She said, I'm so sorry, but the powers that be made me cast it. And she had seen me in the play, you know. But, you know, you didn't even think, oh, that's a bit unfair really so 
Oh, well, things have got so much better. As I'm talking to you, I'm thinking how much better it is, really. I mean, like women directors. I was the first woman director in the Olivier Theatre at the, the National. And that was only because Ian McKellen had me in his company, who was a friend of mine. It wasn't the powers that be at the National that chose me. And then uh, with the Royal Shakespeare Company, I asked they were going to cancel the small-scale tour because they hadn't got funding for it. And that shocked me. And I said, no, 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 we should be going around the country Shakespeare with a tent and all that and they said well all right you can do it to shut me up And I did. I raised the money and we did it. But at the management meetings at that time, which I had to go to because I was then in charge of a company, I used to be the only woman. You know, I remember the meetings used to go on with quite a bit of booze and fags until quite late in the morning. And I had a babysitter. But that is just not happening at all now. It really isn't. I mean, there are amazing women directors increasingly in television and in theatre. So that has shifted so much in my lifetime, and I'm so glad it has. And I think it will happen for people of various ethnicities. The public absolutely accept what we call blind casting. You know, they they don't worry about it. They really don't. If you have a person playing a black father with a white child or something like that, if it's well enough acted, they just accept it, just as they'll have a person with a big nose. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So things are shifting. But these changes, we have to bring people along and myself included. You know, the the Black Lives Matter was a wake up call for me, I must say, because I realised that I honestly knew nothing about our history in the colonies. I'd not learned it at school. It wasn't taught. We were just shown all the red bits Mm. on the map and told the British Empire was wonderful. I knew nothing about it. I don't think it's much different now. No, I think they're trying to bring it. I think the youngsters themselves are. In, I know one of my grandchildren wrote us in school saying you must up your curriculum and put in uh, the true story of the colonies. And, uh, you know, they're they're conscious of it. I don't know where we're going to go next. That's what troubles me. I really don't. I won't be here to see it. But I mean, the seismic changes are happening now. And we seem to be choosing the most appalling leaders all the time. Mm. around the world and and it's because people are unhappy people are aware that something is wrong and therefore a big personality comes along and says I'll make this better they vote for them it all comes down to education it's very important that our education system works well yeah it really is you're incredibly driven aren't you you're you must be 89 now are you and you're still yes I'm 19 working furiously and still wondering where the next job is coming from unbelievably can you imagine ever stopping no honestly I can't I I, I dream of it because I have friends who are now sitting back and enjoying life and you know but I don't know how to do it I really don't know how to do it I have a lovely free day in my diary and I think oh that would be good I've got nothing to do and I, I wake up and think oh what am I going to do I should be doing something I, I, I must write I must read I must I must research I must do you know what I mean it, it's kind of deep in me I wish it wasn't I don't admire or like it I really think being driven is absurd and I urge people not to do that to make their lives full of pleasure because you only got one life you know so relish the pleasure and it's too late now to change I know that I'll be I'll be desperately trying to do things as I die you know I'll be like this planning some god-awful rescue scheme 
that people don't want. And uh, as I'm dying, I can't, I can't imagine not joining in. It's joining in, really, isn't it? Some people are quite happy when they get older to say, OK, I've done my bit, and they have. I now deserve to put my feet up and enjoy myself a bit. And that's what I'm going to do. And I so admire that. I think that's what you should do. Because all the things I do are not much use anyway. You know, they're... They'll make tiny pinpricks a change, but very, very little. But the tiny pinpricks all join up, don't they? Well, I don't I know. hope. <laughs> yeah. You seem incredibly strong and sometimes quite fierce and angry. Are you one of those people who's like paddling furiously underneath? No, oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm not terribly strong. I'm really not. Again, that goes back to my childhood. I had to be. You know, if you got bullied, you had to fight back and you had to continue. And if you were bombed, you know, if your roof came off and your windows were out and people were killed, then you'd got to get up the next day and get on with it, you know, and, and pull yourself together. It was a phrase that my mother had a lot. Mm. Oh, Sheila, pull yourself together. And I, and I do try to do that. But underneath, there is a lot of grief, mm. a lot of grief. Not just for me, but for what I see around me. And that drives me as well. And that's what I can't let go. Do you know what I mean? When I see like what's happening at the moment and what happened in Afghanistan, I wish I could not look at the news. I try not to and just think it's not my job now to try and do anything about that. It so moves me and so devastates me that I find I've got to do something. It's like putting a bandage on a wound. Do you know what I mean? I can't just sit there and watch it. It's not helpful half the time, my grief, but that's a bit what drives me. Grief and fear is what drives me. Fear is a big one. Fear always driven you? Yes, from wartime childhood, yes. And certainly a bit the insecurity of my very early childhood of not having a home, just you know being in digs, as it were, for a long while. And But certainly the war, I was very frightened a lot of the time. You know, if that's in your formative years, it's there. However much you work on it, I don't think it goes away. That's your first reaction. If as a child, your first reaction is, oh, they're going to hurt me, or that plane is sounding as though it's going to drop something. And then your first reaction, I think, for the rest of your life is, oh, somebody's going to hurt me, or that situation is going to hurt me. And then you say, okay, I'll deal with it, because you have to. But I'm certainly not as strong as I look. And when I'm on my own, I'm very unstrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's like being a little bit like being on a permanent state of alert, isn't it? I think kind it is, yeah, it's a good description, good description. Yeah, one is alert to danger. I suppose everybody is to a certain extent, aren't they? I mean, although that's not true. I have got friends who really are very comfortable with life. You know, they 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 don't expect things to go wrong. I expect everything to go wrong. Every play <laughs> I've been in, I thought, well, that's going to be a flop. You know, that's <laughs> going to be a disaster. But I do have lovely friends who relish the good things of life. And I'm apt to think I don't deserve them. Oh, that makes me sad. Oh, don't be sad. You do deserve them. You so do. And how have your rage levels been as you've got older? Well, they're less concealed. I think that's the thing. When you get old, you don't care so much what people think. That's one of the advantages of old age, because you're not going to be here much longer. So you think, oh, well, it doesn't matter. You know, if people don't like me, I'll, I'll have to put up with it for a little while until I die. So therefore, I'm 
much less polite. I'm afraid to say less kind than I used to be. I mean, if somebody is doing a job badly, you're supposing, I don't know, even a builder or something like that, I don't say, would you mind me just <laughs> mentioning that perhaps I say, you're doing that wrong. Do you mind doing it wrong? <laughs> You know what I mean? It's a difference between... I, I'm awfully tired of having to apologise for disagreeing. I hope you don't mind me saying, well, yes, you're right, but, you know, I just want to be able to be honest. And probably wrong. People can contradict me. But I want to be able to say what I think. Whereas a lot of my life, certainly my early life, as a woman... I haven't always said what I thought. And I love the fact that in terms of the Me Too movement, girls are putting up with much less nonsense than I did as a girl. So, yeah, I've always been a bit angry, but now I'm old. And one of the things is that I'm so shocked that nothing changes. You know, I've got to the age where things are coming round again. Uh, the same mistakes are being made. We don't seem to have learnt. And that makes me beside myself with rage. You know, the recent thing in Afghanistan, you know, when you think people died to try and change that country. Now, whether we should have gone in there or not, you know, mm. is debatable. But, but then... We just left it and it's chaos there. When things like that happen, I think, oh, what's the bloody point? Really, honestly, we never learn. Yeah. So that makes me angry. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. You mentioned Me Too just now. Are there things that you wish you hadn't put up with in your career? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. When I did a program that they gave me, actually to shut me up because I was complaining about only doing rubbish sitcoms. And they gave me a, a, I think called now seriously Sheila Hancock, mm. which then became a series called Simply Sheila, which was review sketches and interviews and all sorts of things. And there was one sketch which I'd done in the theatre, which was about a very racist and horrible landlady who hated everybody and was a vicious sketch by a wonderful writer called Ken Hoare. And, and then the person who was directing it, who was a man, said, you can't do that, Sheila. And I said, why not? And he said, along the lines of it's going to destroy your image, which at that point was Tizzy Blonde, you know, from the mm. rag trade and things yeah. like that. And I said, well, I know it works and I want to do it. And he said, well, I'm saying you can't. Now, it was the one time and I, I, I thought, okay, I'm not going to take this line down. I said, can I take it higher? So I went to the head of comedy and he said, I don't think you should do it either. And I then went to the head of the BBC, Hugh Weldon, and I said, I want to do this sketch. And it was unheard of, dare I say, for a woman to stand up for herself, a yeah. young woman like that. And anyway, he and all of them eventually said, look, you can do it to the studio audience. And if it goes well, it can go in the programme. But we're not happy about it. Anyway, I did it and it went like a bomb and it went in the programme. And I didn't work for the BBC for 10 years after that. Wow. So, you know, it wasn't possible for women. And then along came Jennifer and Dawn doing their own material, writing their own material. And all that changed, all that changed. They were bold and fearless and stood up for themselves, probably helped by the fact that it was two of them. But when I was young, it was unheard of. And I look back and I think, oh, God, why <laughs> did I put up with that? And on that one occasion, that's why I didn't, because you couldn't, you know. You were punished. Yeah, the re repercussions. And be even now, you, know, you said earlier something about you've come over as strong. I know if somebody says Sheila's very strong, 
they find it offensive. Do you know what I mean? It, it's mm. another word for difficult, for <laughs> embarrassing, for saying things that are not necessarily necessary to be said. It's still difficult for women to really say what they think boldly and without saying, I hope you don't mind me saying, but I think, do you know what I mean? Yeah, or like at the end kind of saying, oh, but don't worry if not. You know. Yes, yes, yes. It's only my opinion, but yeah. You know, yeah, oh. no, it's... Yes, I do look back and I and also all the sort of bum pinching and stuff that went on that we put up with in those days. It was, you know, girls just now would thump somebody. Yeah, quite right too. Yeah. yeah. Quite right, quite right. Yeah. I mean, from where I'm sitting now, I can't imagine anybody ever daring to pinch your bum, but I'm sure they did a lot. <laughs> Well, I didn't look like I do now. I didn't have white hair and look relatively dignified. Stop it, you look fabulous. (laughs) But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it is a burden to be what is known as a strong woman. And that alone is undermined you a bit. Do you know what I mean? You think, oh God, I'm going to get a lot of stick for this if I say what I think. Yeah, it's those words, isn't it, that are never used, never applied to men. No, being strong as a man is really, really good. I do think it's changed. I do think it's changed a lot. Girls are speaking out for themselves a great deal more now than they did. And we have lots of women in position of power now. Not enough, but we have got women in position. And women writers, which is vital. That's one of the biggest changes in television, all the wonderful women writers. But it's it's so silly because women have got so much to offer. That's what's distressing. You know, they are wise in a way, women. The maternal instinct does make you very caring, you know, unless you've been injured and therefore are not very good at that. But on the whole, I think we have so much to offer. It's interesting in the lockdown how well the New Zealand Premier did. What's her name? You know, Jacinda Ardern. Yes. And um, Angela Merkel. There was none of that. We are going to fight them. We are going to defeat this virus. We are going to blah, blah, blah. All that War language, yeah. Absolutely. It was very sensibly approached and they were very successful. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? I could keep you talking all day, but I better not. I just need to ask you the questions that I always ask at the end. What's your emotional age? Two. (laughs) Why? Well, because I'm so emotionally unstable (laughs) and so undisciplined, I suppose, you know. Are you really? Yes, my emotions are. They fly around a bit. Immature. Immature I am. At 89, I'm immature. I will mature before I die. <laughs> oh, please don't. Can you give us a book recommendation? Yes, Shaggy Bane, I've just read. And it's one of the most amazing depictions of poverty and a woman alcoholic. I mean, it's sounding awfully dreary. It's also fun. No, it's brilliant. I was so moved by it. The detail, it's obviously a biography, although he calls it a novel, but it was, I gutted me. But I thought, oh, please, everybody read this because you see what it's like to be in a broken family. You actually live the terrible experience of having a mother who is wonderful, but can't cope and living in a community, all of whom are helping one another, but at the same time, all of them at sixties and seventies. It's an amazing book. I loved it. I hope it goes on to the school syllabuses because it's it's a beautiful piece of writing, but it's also a revelation. I think. Brilliant. What advice would you give younger women? I suppose just be yourself. 
I think. Have the courage to be yourself. And by that, I mean, don't don't think you've got to look a certain way and your hair's got to be a certain way and you've got to please the boys by doing certain things and you've got to do a job that maybe your teachers have said you can do because you can't do something else or but know yourself and be yourself I think is is really important thank you who is your old bird role model but there's nobody older than me (laughs) I can't I can't think of anybody who's older the queen I suppose is a pretty good I mean it's not role model is not the word but I admire her I did hugely admire Bette Davis when I worked with her she was very old when I worked with her and she was herself she didn't give a damn about what people thought. I mean, she sacked everybody at the beginning of the film because they wanted her to do it sort of method acting and with rotten lighting and all that. She got rid of them all and lit herself and did it her way, which she knew is what the public wanted. And it's a bloody good way, you know. Mm. And, And she had a terrible time with men. She wrote some very good biographies, actually, one very good autobiography. And she fought the studio system, you know, and and I'm sure she got a hell of a lot. Well, I know she got a hell of a lot of stick and not as much praise as she should have done. I I was doing a a shot with her. You know, you go behind the camera to feed people lines. And I had to feed her lines for a, a couple of lines that she had on camera. And it was amazing. You know, I did my lines and she did this. And at the end of it, I said, well done, Miss Davis. That was wonderful. And she said, oh, thank you, honey. All I ever get usually is printed. And what she meant was that normally she did it and it was kind of expected of her. Yeah. And they just said, okay, that'll do and moved on. Nobody thought to say, you're terrific because they were frightened of her or whatever, you know. And me, I was shaking when I said it, but I thought, I've got to tell her, it's it's marvellous. And I know she was suspicious of me because I'd been in the stage production of the film that we were doing. And I think she thought I was a modern actress who probably wouldn't like her style. But my God, I admired her. I admired her as a person and as an actor. Yeah, she really, she was incredibly brave, wasn't she? I mean, she really yeah. stood up for herself. And she, One of the things on. she said was, growing old is not for sissies, she mm. said. And that, again, was very true. Yeah, she would be my role model. Yeah, I'd like, I'd like to be like her. Oh. <laughs> um, is that your experience of growing old, that's not for sissies? Yes, I'm afraid so. I, I, I'm certainly health-wise, I do have a lot of things wrong with me. And uh, that's boring. But it's acceptable, you know. It's you know, When I was young, I had acne. And then I had breast cancer when I was middle-aged. So, mm. you know, those sort of things dog you all your life. And just when you're old, you're more likely maybe to get nasty things that your body doesn't function as well. And I fight it. I go to the gym and I walk and I do all those things to keep going. But sometimes I think, oh love to just curl up and not bother you know that that's the big thing about when you get old that you really would rather stay in bed (laughs) (laughs) what's your superpower apart from getting out of bed (laughs) being able to entertain I would love Mm. to be able to do a wonderful meal without having hysterics and um, entertain my friends in the way that they entertain me sometimes and I just get food from Ottolenghi when the whole is my I'm sure I, they're happy. <laughs> yeah, well, I think they probably are. But it doesn't seem very generous to do that compared with all the effort. I'm a member of a book club and um, we take it in turns to go to one another's houses. And they do the most amazing feasts and they, they always look 
immaculate. And if I dare to do anything, I look like the wreck of the Hesperus. I'm sweating <laughs> and shaking with fear at the things not burning and vegetables finishing at the same time as the meat and all that. Yeah, that would be lovely. If I could, if I could learn to cook well, that would be really good. Well, there's plenty of time. <laughs> um, no, I haven't got time. I can barely cope with what I have got to do. <laughs> and lastly, as you've got older, how much more or less of a damn do you give? Oh, dear, that's too pronged. I don't give a damn about myself so much. I, You know, what the way I look or, you know, I wear hardly any makeup and I could look, I'm wearing a filthy old T-shirt. But I do give a damn about the world, where the world's going. I care terribly about that. But I mean, I don't really give a damn about myself. <laughs> Thank you so much. I've had the best hour. I hope you have, once we got over our technical yeah. problems. Thank you very much. It's been absolutely Thank wonderful. You. And really good luck with the book. I'm sure it will fly. Thank you, Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow, because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash The Shift. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.